Today's sermon comes from Matthew 8, verses 18 to 34. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the, wa- by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged them, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold... All the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The Loch Ness Monster. Whenever you hear that phrase, what comes to mind? The Loch Ness Monster. Now, for me, a whole host of things comes to mind, but for most of us, it's probably that grainy black and white photo of that little worm head sticking out of the water. Well, this folktale about the Loch Ness Monster has existed for a very long time. But in 1933, there was a physician and a surgeon who um, took a photo that he claimed to be the Loch Ness Monster. Hysteria ensued. And for decades, people were searching the waters of Loch Ness in Scotland to help find this mythical creature. On his deathbed, He ended up admitting that it was a hoax. They used this little submersible and attached a little thing to the top and tricked everybody into thinking that this was in fact the Loch Ness Monster. He admitted the hoax, admitted it was real. There's no extant evidence of this mythical creature. Yet, despite all of this evidence to the contrary, there's some people who still believe in the Loch Ness Monster. Steve Feltman is one of those men. Steve Feltman has been searching for the last 32 years of his life for the Loch Ness Monster, even hearing when he was about 20 years old, when the guy who took the picture told it was a hoax, even when he found out it was a hoax, he still uh, kept going with his mission to find the Loch Ness Monster. 
He's so obsessed with Nessie, which is the name of the Loch Ness Monster, that he sold his possessions, quit his job, broke up with his girlfriend, retrofitted a van to live beside the lake, to live there and stay there 24-7, 365, to find this non-existent monster. He actually holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest continual search of the Loch Ness Monster, which I don't know that you lead at a party with that. That's not a fun party story. But they even did a documentary about his life and listen to the overlap of worship that we would recognize in his life's pursuits. Read, you'll, you'll see this here. Listen to what he says. The reason I sit here and I try to solve this mystery is because that is what makes my heart sing. Sounds a lot like worship. My life gives me freedom, adventure, and unpredictability. It's a dream come true. Now, for Steve, he's given up everything and passionately pursuing an absolute hoax. But for Christians, there's a lot of overlap in this Venn diagram for what we are supposed to do as we follow Jesus. Paul says this in Philippians 3.8. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, Steve's life, his heart song is going to end with heartbreak, but his commitment and unwavering pursuit of finding this mythical creature should help us to ask some hard questions about our own heart and be like, is Steve more dedicated to a fairy tale than I am to pursuing Jesus? It's a great kind of examining question for our lives. Is this man pursuing a hoax more than I'm pursuing my perfectly lived, died and resurrected savior that was seen by hundreds that's attested to by Christians all over the world who is with us today? Am I willing to lose all things for the sake of knowing Christ? And that question is at the heart of our text today. And as we turn to our text, we see Jesus in chapter eight interacting with locals. He's performed miracles. He has displayed his power and he's inviting everyone around him to come follow him. Some people in pure excitement are like, yes, I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. But Jesus balances that missions conference high, that youth group camp high, that, uh, that worship, everything high. He balances all of their expectations with painful reality. And this begs the question, why should we follow Jesus? Why should we follow him? We see two answers in our text. Number one, his power over nature, and then his power over evil. So we should follow Jesus based on the text, two things, because of his power over nature, because his power over evil. We see his power over nature in verses 18 through 23. Here we find Jesus talking with a scribe and then this other disciple. Now, scribes were very educated, very wealthy, very powerful men who study and trained and actually copied the law from the Old Testament. You'll see throughout the New Testament scriptures that these people were regularly arguing with Jesus about points of the law. Now, this scribe, 
power, influence. He sees Jesus performing these miracles and in his zeal says in verse 19, I'll follow you wherever you go, right? There's a lot of zeal with maybe not a lot of wisdom here. Look at Jesus's response. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man, he's referencing Daniel 7, which was a prophecy about God himself, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Hmm? That's like, you've got somebody excited to follow you and you hit them with that. Like, wouldn't you say, yeah, come follow me. It's gonna be great. Let's head out. No, that's not what Jesus does. Then we have another disciple who wants to follow Jesus. There's a funeral. He has to take care of a loved one. And Jesus's response to him wanting to follow him. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Now, this doesn't sound like the gracious, gentle lamb of God with his long hippie hair with his beautiful tan holding the little sheep like he took the photo at Kmart. That's not what Jesus seems like here. But notice Jesus is doing the most absolutely loving thing that he can do with these people. He's providing them with truth and love. Jesus is letting these two men and everyone around him know that following him is not for the weak. The scribe who could have seen his power and sincerely wanting to follow him, recognize his power. He may have assumed that he was going to share in some of that same power. But Jesus shares, not only will he not receive that power, but he's gonna have to leave his whole entire life and wealth and prestige and status He's gonna have to forsake all those things to follow him. Now, think of the manger scene. We just celebrated Christmas. Think about the son of man here, Daniel chapter seven, God in the flesh. Jesus is saying that I'm God. He's told this scribe, he's got nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus proved it even by his birth. There was no room for him in the end. And the God of all creation was born amongst animals in an animal stall. Jesus is proving that following him means that if he has no comfort, nowhere to lay his head, no easy go of things, it's fair and very safe to assume and believe that Jesus says we will experience the same things. Transition to Jesus's seemingly off-putting remarks to the other disciple. He wants to follow Jesus. He's got some other important things to do. Jesus isn't saying that burying your loved one is is not important. Jesus is not saying abandon the people that you care about. But his point is, if we are going to follow Jesus, Jesus must be first and preeminent and more important than anything in this world, including God honoring things. Not even good things can stand in the way of Jesus's lordship over our lives. Jesus is telling us to count the cost before we follow him. It's brutally honest, but it's equally loving. And C.S. Lewis captured this beautifully in Mere Christianity. He says it this way. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. 
I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Now, if you're here this morning and you're hearing this sober reality, you need to realize two things can be true at the same time. Salvation is absolutely free. There is no effort, no merit, no good deeds on your part where Jesus is gonna say, yeah, you did really good. Welcome to the family. No, salvation is absolutely free. We come to Jesus with all of our sins and brokenness. We are spiritually dead and Jesus, by his grace through our faith, saves us. Our sins, past, present, future, are covered by the blood of the lamb. Salvation is absolutely free, that's true. But another thing's also true. Salvation is free, but discipleship costs you everything. Discipleship costs you everything. And when you can rejoice in both of those truths together, you start to change from the inside out. You start to look more like Jesus. Now, we see Jesus displaying his power and he tells us that he's God in the flesh and we should follow him. But now he gives some examples of what he's powerful over. And we see in 23 through 27, this scene with the boat and the storm. In these verses, Jesus's disciples are getting into the boat on the Sea of Galilee and this storm hits. Now this massive storm was swamping the boats, but the storm was also swamping the hearts of these men. We need to ask, what is Jesus doing? What's he doing in the boat? Jesus is catching up on some Z's. Jesus is sleeping hard. He's sleeping like that toddler that has ran through the trampoline park for four hours and falls asleep on the car ride home. Jesus is enjoying himself. This is what we should absolutely expect out of him. You see, as soon as he's finished teaching the crowds, the disciples probably think they dodged a bullet. Man, you called out that scribe. Way to go, Jesus. You called out those disciples. You told everybody how powerful you are. I'm glad we're safe. We dodged a bullet on this one. Let's howl off and go do some more ministry together. Boom, nightmare hits. You should absolutely expect this to happen. It's kind of like being on a plane for the first time and experiencing turbulence, right? It just, it feels terrifying. And although I don't put all of my weight on a plane, one of the things that I do regularly is I watch the stewardesses, I watch the flight crew. And in the middle of the turbulence, if they're just sitting there, just nice and polite with their seatbelt strapped, they're not panicked, I'm going to at least try not to panic. Like I can assent to the truth that there might be no danger, even though there's things going on around me. Now, the disciples should have seen Jesus sleeping and said, hey, if he's the God of all these things, if he's the son of man, then I can at least sit here in fear and then wait for Jesus to wake up. But that's not what they do. They see the storm and how do they respond? That panicked impression, you know, when you're driving and you're about to hit a stoplight and your wife's grabbing for everything in the car because you're a thousand feet away from hitting somebody. They were in full panic uh, passenger princess mode, right? They woke Jesus up, panicked. 
And notice their response to Jesus. Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. Think of the irony in that statement. I wish I could dissect that. The one that can save them, they know he can save them. They're also simultaneously terrified that he can't save them. It's just a massive mess of irony here. But what does Jesus say to them? Why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? Now, Jesus knew how weak their faith was. And you need to realize he could have brought them through the Sea of Galilee and never let them experience this storm. He could have done all that, but he allowed these men to experience mortal danger to teach him about himself. And notice the series of rebukes that happens here. First, in the middle of the storm, he rebukes the men for their weak faith. So he's getting to their heart. And then he rebuked the wind and the waves. That's the circumstance. So Jesus, in the middle of the circumstance, got to their hearts first. And the point of this is that Jesus cares about their hearts more than he cares about their circumstances. The wind and the waves were the circumstances that exposed their weak faith And Jesus rose and rebuked them. And then the waves provided great calm. The storms ended, but what was left with them? What in the world kind of man is this? Who can do these things? So the circumstances long gone, but they're focused on Jesus. And we need to ask, what's the point of this? It's very basic. Jesus is powerful over all creation. And what this means, then any storm that this life can bring, anything in the created world that would seek to destroy Christ's people, anything that can be thrown our way, Jesus is more powerful than. But notice Jesus isn't some distant light years away letting us fend for ourselves, but Jesus is with us in the middle of the storm the entire time. So no matter what happens to you as a believer, nothing in this world will overtake you and you're never alone this side of heaven. This matters because we face a lot of storms this side of heaven. I could go into sickness, disease, suffering. Yes, those are big storms. Yes, God is with you there. But I wanna talk about some more nuanced, more insidious, more challenging storms that we face more often. And in those moments, deciding whether or not we follow Jesus. Humor me for a moment. Think about coming into a new job, new career. Um, You're the new man on the team. You get there and after a few months, you start to notice your boss, your coworkers, your managers are starting to do some uh, not so honest things in the business. They're overselling and underperforming with clients. They're lying about competitors. They're saying they're gonna do one thing, they do the other, they overprice, overcharge and underperform. There's some time theft. Uh, There's some book cooking to keep things off the record, to get some extra money. And you as a Christian, you start to feel uneasy about it. Everybody in the company is okay with that culture, but you as a new Christian, the new person providing for your family or yourself is left in this conundrum. What do I do? 
Do I step up and do I do the right thing or do I keep my mouth shut and just let everybody continue to do those things and just pray for them, All right? Following Jesus means you count the cost in these situations. Are you willing to risk doing the right thing and facing uh, ridicule, potentially being ostracized by your coworkers, potentially even losing your job, your status, being the fun guy on your team, having work relationships? Are you willing to lose all of that to do what's right even when no one's looking? Take family dynamics. We just hung out with our families for quite some time over the holidays. Here's another example. You are in Christ, you're growing, you're being made to look more like Jesus. Uh, you're growing in your faith, you're growing in community. And as you continue to grow in community, you know other family members around you are kind of unhealthy. You notice some toxic traits, some manipulation. You notice you have this one drunkle, this drunk uncle who just kind of nails back too many eggnogs and you're like, man, he's gonna say something. And then he kind of says something really harsh or mean about somebody else in your family, just some really toxic behaviors. It's in those moments, are you going to wait till he sobers up and then have a truth and loving conversation with him Maybe put some boundaries in place where it's like, hey, drunkle, if you continue to nail eggnogs and just say horrific things about my family members in front of the kids, like we're not gonna come to Christmas dinner next year. And here's why we should promote loving people with our words instead of tearing them down. Are you willing to engage in those conversations? Are you willing to be the black sheep of the family because you're willing to bring light in the middle of darkness, to be light in the middle of generational curses? And maybe this is the way we've always done it. This is just us. Are you willing to at least step up for truth and righteousness in the middle of a family dynamic and experience being the weirdo? being, oh, they're just too sensitive. They're just a, a sensitive millennial with all that mental health stuff. Are you willing to be that person? Now, I'm not calling us to be legalistic hall monitors. As soon as somebody does something dumb, we jump on them with the gospel. I'm not saying that at all, but what we all are all called to do is to have a backbone when it matters. And when we have a backbone, when we shouldn't have it, to repent quickly. And then when we need to have a backbone, to trust that the Lord would use you as salt and light and truth and love in very difficult situations. It's very likely other people are thinking it. God gives us the boldness to follow him in this. Now, to follow Jesus in the big storms or some of these smaller, more kind of challenging storms that are in big gray areas. To follow Jesus means that you're okay with speaking truth and love and enduring societal consequences because it's Christ that we represent, because it's Christ's glory that we seek. It's Christ's honor that we live for. And so we are okay being the outcast because we want to see his name and glory and honor shown everywhere. And we're okay having the consequences. We're okay repenting. We're okay being odd sometimes. 
Because you don't have to follow Jesus very long and to live in light of a Christian worldview for people to think that you're odd, for people to think that you're narrow-minded or brainwashed, but he's worth following because of all the circumstances that we could possibly endure in this world, he endured them and he conquered them. Think about all of the creation he spoke into existence. The trees that he spoke into existence were cut and chopped into a cross to torture him on. The stones that he made were fashioned to keep him in the tomb. But nothing in creation can defeat him not even the sins that we commit or left undone over and over, nothing can defeat Jesus. Because he faced all this with you on his heart, you better believe he knows every single storm that you could ever face. And he endured all of it because of the joy set before him. He did this to make sure that when we step off our little islands of peace and we jump into a sea of storms, he's right there with us. Hearing every single one of these, Lord, I'm perishing. I don't know how I'm going to see my way out of this. And he promises that he's gonna give you peace that passes understanding. But here's the kicker. You'll never experience that peace that passes understanding until you go through storms. If he brings you to a storm, he's either gonna bring you through it in this life or the next. If he brings you through it this side of heaven, your faith will be stronger. Your witness will be stronger. Your devotion to him will be stronger. And this is not to torture us, but to strengthen us because we exist in community. So when you feel like you're going through the worst storm of your life, don't waste your storms. Don't waste what's been going on in your life. Jesus is redeeming it and guarantees somebody else around you is gonna go through that at some certain level and your story is there to point them to the same savior that held you the whole time. Your suffering isn't in vain and your story is here to build everyone else up as we all lift our heads and praise Jesus. That's the Jesus we're commanded to follow, church. That's the risen Savior who's powerful over all creation, over every circumstance and everything you face. But even better, he's worth following, not just because he's Lord over creation, but lastly, over evil itself. Notice in verses 28 through 34, Jesus is confronted with two demon-possessed men. Now, don't get lost in the sauce of the demons. Don't get lost there, okay? This story is not about demons. You'll actually see the point of this in just a minute. But notice the demons set up the circumstance for other people's faith. Notice this. They cry out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, strikingly, demons have a really strong theology, they recognize Jesus's divinity, that he's God. They just don't understand his love. They know his power, but not his love. 
But not only that, they only move under Jesus's authority. Now, they asked to be sent into a herd of pigs because Jesus is on earth during this time as the lamb. He's here to save the world in this scene. He's not here for final judgment. When Jesus returns, of which we're all waiting for, he's not coming back as a lamb, he's coming back as a lion. And he's going to judge everything, all evil and good. And at that point, uh, demons, evil, Satan will be cast and destroyed forever. So during this scene, it wasn't the final judgment. So they asked to be sent into a herd of pigs and Jesus tells them one word, go. Some translations might say, be gone. The demons then jumped into the herd of pigs. They went off, they all died. And that's not the big point here. The point is, what did the people do in response to this? They asked Jesus to leave. Jesus told demons, be gone. The people told Jesus, be gone. Now, this is interesting because these demons were tormenting this man and Jesus cast them away because he was there to spread the gospel, not to destroy things. But it seems odd on the surface. This does seem odd on the surface. I'll grant us that. Demon possession is real. It's real, but no evil can stand one word of Jesus. We're gonna sing a mighty fortress in just a minute. One line in that that I love, one little word shall fail him, right? We don't need to think demons are fake or too mighty to overtake Christians, Christ, none of that. Nothing, not even evil itself can conquer Jesus, but this isn't the heart of the matter here. It's not the demons, it's the people's response. You see, the people in the city that came out should have been rejoicing that their friend, their neighbor, a person that they do life with, that these men were absolutely healed. They didn't. What was their response? They asked Jesus to leave. You see, they valued the utility and the income that these herd of pigs brought to their community more than they did the healing of these men. The herdsmen, we even see in verse 33, we might try to give the people out and say, well, maybe they didn't really hear about them being you know, healed. But the herdsmen fled in verse 33, it says, and going into the city, they told them everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. So they were clearly told how Jesus healed them, but instead of responding to Jesus's power with love and allegiance, they kicked him out. So Jesus is ruining their livelihood. He's ruining their comfort. And they said, get out, Jesus. Just like he told the scribe a few verses earlier, Jesus has nowhere to lay his head. What's the driving point with all these interactions? What's the driving points with all these stories? Don't let comfort, possessions, evil, the fear of ridicule, ridicule come in the way of following Jesus. Why? Because there's no created thing. There is no evil. There is no comfort in this life that's lasting except the comfort found in the person and work of Jesus, who is the friend of sinners who protects us, who guards us, who keeps us, who's with us day and night. He's never on vacation. He's always with us, ready to respond. And he died for us and rose again to bring us new life. So if creation can't contain Jesus 
if demons can't defeat Jesus, if your sin was paid in full and it can't defeat Jesus, then what other convincing do you all and myself need here today that Jesus is the only one worth following? What else is there? Nessie? Bank accounts? Comfort? Peace? All of that stuff, too much is never enough. You'll always be wanting more, but Jesus comes and satisfies our heart's longing and desire. And we're meant to be with him for eternity. You see, following Jesus, it will cost us absolutely everything, but getting Jesus is far more wonderful than everything in all of creation. Karen Watson knew this too. Karen was a Southern Baptist missionary. Um, she was sent to the Middle East to care for persecuted Christians there. And on March 15, 2003, Karen and four other missionaries were killed for serving the church. Interestingly, on March 7th, Karen felt this overwhelming desire to write a farewell letter. I've included that letter here, let's read it. It says, Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place, I was called to him. To obey was my objective, to suffer was expected. His glory, my reward, his glory, my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I am still working with my people group. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young, young pastors. In regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simply just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to the Father, the missionary heart. Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too in my church family, in his care, Karen. Church, we've got a tale of two stories. We've got Steve risking his whole life and well-being to follow a hoax. We've got Karen risking and giving her life to follow Jesus. And her reward was knowing him more than anything in this world. And for all of us, at some point, we're gonna be faced with that same question. We're gonna to have to count the cost and choose what's worth following, the things of this world or Jesus. From big things to small things, Jesus is Lord of them all. And one very basic and pressing question that this text leaves for us is, would you be willing to lose your life for Jesus? I don't want you to answer to me, but this is just the question to ask you and myself. Are you willing to lose your life to follow Jesus? If so, are you willing to live your life for him as well? If you were sent 
to being willing to die for him that it necessitates you also agree to live your life for him as well. And you see that's sobering, but it's also encouraging because that same Jesus that we are living for and being bold for is the same Jesus that we sin against over and over and over again. We do things when we shouldn't have done and we don't do things we, we should do and we spoke up and said the wrong things. We don't speak up when we should. But the beauty about the gospel is it changes the world and it changes us. And he grants us forgiveness and mercy and grace over and over again. So no matter the storm you're facing, it will never defeat you because it didn't defeat Jesus. Satan himself can't defeat Jesus and keep him in the grave. So nothing's going to separate you from Jesus, not even your sin. So the call for us is to go and live boldly. Live boldly. Repent quickly. And know Jesus is with you every step of the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a friend of sinners. Uh, you made it very clear you didn't came to, uh, come to save um, the well-to-do and those who have it figured out, but you came to make this mess whole. And Father, thank you for loving sinners. Thank you for being patient and slow to anger with us. Thank you for always letting us drink from that fount of mercy. And I pray that the mercy and the truth and love that you exhibit to us through your word we would live that out in life and community. Father, we are gonna be tested through various storms and trials and uh, you're with us as we walk through those things. And, and Father, as we read through Paul's letters, he was in prison. He never asked for his circumstances to change, but his heart to change in the middle of wretched conditions. And I pray the same for us. Would you change our hearts in the middle of whatever circumstances we're going through? Would you refine us and make us more like you? Would we live boldly, repent quickly, and have grace for ourselves and others this year? We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.